Bloody Elbow presents the Hey, Not the Face podcast. Your host is Bloody Elbow's chief financial columnist, John Nash. Hello and welcome back to Hey, Not the Face with your host, John Nash, and your producer, me, Steffi Haynes. And today we are going to talk about what to expect from MMA promotions in the current new year of 2023. John, how the hell are you? Uh, besides the fact that I'm still signing everything 2022, okay, doing all right. <laughs> I have only had to sign a couple of things. I went to the doctor twice, and I went today back to my very first PT of the year, and I haven't had the problem. I don't know. I'm, I've been geared for 2023 since about November. I, it's, I figured about uh, March. I'll have it figured out. <laughs> well, I guess we should get right into this. And, and you know, we're here in 2023 and a whole heck of a lot of things are happening in MMA right now. I mean, it's been a busy week. Yeah, it's, it's the last couple of weeks. Been, we've got a year's worth of news stories in the last couple of weeks. It, we really do. And and besides the UFC, there's all these other promoters that seem to actually be trying to cement themselves as major players. Now, what should we expect for this year? And what are some of the more important possibilities that we should sort of be keeping our eyes open for? Well, I guess that's what the episode's for. We have we have PFL, we have Bellator, we have Ryzen, one championship, the UFC, the entire industry. Uh, we have a lot going on with all of them. So have at it. All right. Well, you know what? Let's start with the PFL because they have the biggest news uh, as far as their roster right now in that they signed Jake Paul. So I guess we should start there. I'm I'm all ears. Let's start with PFL. Sounds perfect. All right. So they kind of like to boast about being the number two promotion. But how are they doing financially? Because I saw a comment from uh, Kelsey. She said, how are they doing it? It doesn't seem like the math is actually mathing with the PFL. And that made a lot of sense to me because I often wonder, too, how the hell do they make money? Well, right now they're losing money. They're losing a lot of money per year because they're trying to build a, a product and they collect some money. They, they don't sell. We know. And Paul Gibbs actually kept track of this good a great for years now. They don't sell a lot in tickets. So there's not a lot of demand on their ticket front. Uh, their TV deal, they do have an ESPN deal now, but it's not a gangbuster deal. It is. It is much better. They signed a new deal this year before they were getting like three million a year. Uh, started last year for the ESPN deal. So that, that's like 300000 and I think they did 10 shows, so 300000 a show. Now it's probably around $10 million. So it's a lot bigger, but that still doesn't cover the $10 million payouts at the end for all the champs, right? So every year they're losing money, but they've raised a lot of money. And, you know, they, that's the point of raising the money is to spend that money to build up the brand, to build up cards, to acquire fighters so they can start selling it for more money and then eventually make a profit. And so that's the plan. And that's where the Jake Paul comes in because they signed Jake Paul, this part of the MMA. He's now signed to, Bell- now signed to the PFL. And with him, he's in charge of the, uh, the what is it, super fight division. Mm-hmm. as they call it, which is their pay-per-view division. And, and so they're going to do, they've been planning to do this for years. Now they've talked about, they held their la- their first pay-per-view last year, which did not do well. 
It sold very badly, but I think a lot of people, they overestimate. It did badly, but think, they put on a pay-per-view, but they didn't put on a pay-per-view with massive stars that it had big guarantees, right? We, we view Kayla Harrison as a big star. It gets a big, because she probably got like a million dollars for it. But in the grand scheme of combat sports, that's not a huge purse, right? So even though they lost tons of money on that pay-per-view, what that did is they got to hold their first pay-per-view, kind of work out the kinks in the system, test it out, and they have ESPN as a partner. And the good thing about that is ESPN also sells UFC pay-per-views. And so ESPN, through ESPN Plus, has all the data on who buys pay-per-views. They collect who buys it. They can see you know, what advertising gets people to buy it. They can see what fighters. And so they now can directly, like ESPN does, you know, I'm sure you get the email in your, in your you look at your email before the UFC event and it tells you what fight's coming up and you better get your pay-per-view. I know I get that. They can directly target fans and they can use special promotions for the fans they think that they can get to buy uh, PFL pay-per-views with the right, with the right fighters on it. They say they're the clear number two, are they? Uh, that is very, very, very misleading right now. I, I should say they are. I think they're doing they they're doing good. Uh, we'll talk about some of the other promotions who who make the same claim later, who I think even have less of a claim to it. But the, the Don Davis likes to really boast about their roster, and I think he grossly exaggerates the roster. They're talking about we have 25% of the top 25 on Fight Matrix. Then you look at Fight Matrix, they have nowhere close to that number. <laughs> Truthfully, Bellator has the number, the most, the largest number of top 25 fighters easily outside the UFC. Okay, so, we're going to go to Bellator in just a second, but I got to. We will, yes, but back to PFL. So they're not even close to that. What PFL has. Uh, and also, they don't have the metrics one does. But again, we have questions about one's metrics. But they do have ESPN. They work with ESPN. So they have a platform that probably has a bigger reach to MMA, the MMA fan base in America than any other besides UFC. And they do have raised a lot of money. They burned through a bunch, but they have raised a lot of money, uh, kind of like one. And But they're sitting on this money. And with that money, they are doing something which I want to compliment on this. They're doing something that one didn't do, but I think this is smart by PFL. Their objective is to get, they've made it clear they want to sign big name fighters to put on pay-per-views. And they made a whole big deal about how they're going to offer 50% of the pay-per-view revenue. Now that, that offer really means nothing because if you're going to offer big name fighters like, you know, Nate Diaz or Conor McGregor, or Francis Ngannou to come over to PFL, the idea that you're going to give them just 50% of the pay-per-view revenue doesn't mean much. you got to give, give them a guarantee like they do in boxing. Canelo Alvarez doesn't show up for just 50% of the pay-per-view. He right. shows up for a guarantee of tens of millions. And on top of that, when they cross the line, he gets more than 50% of him and his opponent. Him and Golovkin got more than 50% of the DAZN pay-per-view if it went beyond a certain point. So they're, they're probably going to have to do something like that for the biggest name fighters. But I do like the idea that, I mean, I hope they do that. I hope they're aware that they're going to have to do that because otherwise it's, I don't think this will work if they start telling fighters that all you're going to get is the 50%. But I do like that. They're trying, they, the MMA business, the, the brands, I mean, they're still building their brands, but brands really mean nothing. It's all about the stars and the stars, uh, even though UFC makes ton of their ESPN deal, the truth is it's the pay-per-view, the big fights that draw all the revenue. And so they're making, they're making a smart decision, I think, to focus on trying to get big, the biggest name fighters possible and give them a big cut of the split to get them in the promotion. 
Now, I read that only that division, the super fight division, will be splitting the profit, splitting the, the revenue. That's what I read. And that oh, there, yes, there that's, other that's pay-per-views, true. that there are other pay-per-views were not going to follow that same uh, model. No, no. If you, I mean, I've, you've seen the PFL investors presentation that we'll talk about at a future date. But if you look at that, it talks about how much the wages they have set aside, they have projecting mm-hmm. for fighters. And it's not near 50%. It's a, it's a very small percentage, uh, kind of a UFC percentage that's going to go to fighters on the regular media package. Hmm. For The only 50% split is on the pay-per-view event revenue. So, you know, on, on that front, that's, you know, I think total revenue that they're projecting, not counting the pay-per-view split, two, like $220 million a couple of years from now. I'm just going to go off the top of my head. And about 20% of that is earmarked for the fighters, right? So that's a UFC split. It's the pay-per-view fighters. They're the ones that they're talking about offering this split to. But it's that. So the other fighters, it's it's not like this isn't groundbreaking for the other fighters. Although the million, their their purse system does help a lot of other fighters. It's higher than they normally get that that bonus win. But it is. It would be a massive change for fighters for the biggest stars. If the biggest stars can start going other places to make more money, guess what happens? They're challengers. They're opponents that they need to sell with because often a fight itself doesn't make a fight, you know, doesn't sell a ton of pay-per-views. It's the specific opponent. They can start asking for more. And then it starts trickling down because the next thing is the high-ranked guys that can create a pay-per-view opponent or a future star. They can start asking for more. Can the PFL be successful, especially with a weak pay-per-view division? Uh, well, that's the that's the question. They have this. I think it's possible. It matters how much resources they really have and how many fighters are truly available. And we'll get into the availability of fighters when we get to the UFC. But that's the big question. The thing is, Jake Paul, them signing bait, Jake Paul, I think was smart. Even though I think it's it's not. He, my understanding, he signed to the PFL for exclusively the MMA fights, right? Mm-hmm. He's still not under an exclusive deal with PFL for boxing. That's my understanding. Could be wrong, but asking around, that's what it seems to be. But PFL is very confident. I think they, I think they almost guaranteed it that he will have an MMA fight this year in 2023. That's what I was told. And so that would be huge for them to have him in an MMA fight. If they can get him against Nate Diaz or something, that, that, could, be a, that could be a gigantic pay-per-view, especially with ESPN promoting it. Mm-hmm. So that's huge for them. And it's vague for the fact that he brought ton of attention. So hopefully that attention spills over to their product as a whole. If they can get people buying their pay-per-view, they might decide, well, I'm buying the pay-per-view and some of the fighters coming from their, their tournaments are appearing on these pay-per-views. I'll start watching the rest of the, S- the PFL product. But the pay-per-view, even if they don't, if they buy the pay-per-view, that can generate enough money that they can they can make more on the pay-per-view than they do on their, their regular ESPN uh, content. Let's talk about Bellator and Ryzen because when you sent me the outline, you put these two together. Why? Well, because really they're kind of operating together right now. They, they're almost dependent on each other. Uh, Bellator is Ryzen is actually surprisingly successful. I don't think people are aware of how well Ryzen is apparently doing in Japan. I've been asking around people at all the MMA business in Japan. And they are doing remarkably well, even though they got taken off Fuji TV last year, which was thought to be the death knell for Ryzen. Mm-hmm. It ended up being the luckiest thing that happened to them, right? Why? Because Ryzen found out that there's a lot of fans in Japan that will pay for the pay-per-view instead of watching on free TV. They thought no one would buy the pay-per-view. Instead, 
their first event, the match, the kickboxing match last year, sold half a million pay-per-views at about 50 bucks a pop in Japan. That's a huge number. And then they had a 15 million plus gate at the same time. So they're selling pay-per-views for their events and large numbers of expensive tickets compared to what other promotions besides UFC sell. Can I they're ask a quick question? Yeah, go ahead. Would any of that have to do with some of these exhibition fights that we're getting to see from, you know, Floyd Mayweather? Did, would that have anything at all to do with it? I think it plays a big part because that's the spectacle that fans in MMA in, in Japan like. And it's still, and it brings a lot more attention. They do not have a massive division and they don't have the number one fighters like they used to with Pride or even with uh, Dream when Dream had the top, some of the top lightweights mm -hmm. and fighters still. They don't have that. But what they do is they can bring in a Mayweather. They're going to bring in Pacquiao. Who knows if Nate Diaz is really going to fight there or not? But they can bring these fighters in for one fight. They, you know, they don't make like UFC type money, but they they make more on a, on a single event than any other MMA promotion right now. Yeah. And so I put it with Bellator too because they don't have, like I said, they don't have the roster. My understanding is I was told Bellator Scott Coker really helps rising out because he sent his roster there. That's what made this event successful because it gave it a gimmick. It gave it something for the Japanese fan base to be excited about. It was and an so awesome event. Let me just put that out there. Both of them were. And the pageantry, I mean, it was just incredible. I loved it. I loved the whole crossover aspect. As a fan, this was what I feel like we were owed this for a long time. <laughs> I thought it was great. I mean, it sucks that it didn't play live on Showtime, but that's because yeah, but... it really wasn't a Bellator event. Right. It was a Ryzen event, and Bellator loaned their fighters to Ryzen in exchange. They got Their fighters got paid. They got some money and they got the rights to the rebroadcast later the next day mm. but this was a this was a rising event and so rising gets to promote themselves maybe in the future showtime will start selling the pay-per-view for rising event in the ufc i think that would be smart but they're signed to fight so they have to go through them for an hour along the deal lasts but but because of colkers that's why i put them together because they do work together very symbi symbiotically they're they're very attached to one another almost dependent on each other to, to use the bellator fighters and you know to bring over these big name fighters from the from the west for you know for japanese fans like to get excited about events and for coker it gives him an avenue to actually get his fighter you know he can get big his fighters can get more fights and high paying fights by going to japan so it's a it's a beneficial relationship for both of them something that I don't see other, maybe KSW. I would like to see KSW to join those two because I think that's the only one that would make sense. How did they do last year? Bellator, well, the problem is Bellator lost their own deal. So they're being financed exclusively by Showtime. So it's almost impossible to tell how they do because they don't, it's not like they have a set deal where you know you're 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 forcing Viacom owns Bellator, so they're bidding against themselves. So they can't force the price up as high as possible. So we don't know exactly how well they do. They still sell more tickets than the other American promotions, but it's nothing like the UFC. So my guess is they did ex decent because they you know they got to finally go back on the international market which they built up before but it's nothing like it was when they finally hit it big with the zone deal so i i'm guessing it we're almost back to the days before that where they might be losing us either breaking even or losing a little bit of money what about the rumors that bellator is for sale because ariel helwani uh, was the one that initiated that. So you kind of consider the source and think that this might be? Well, the people have been talking about Bellator for sale for years, and it actually started when World Series of Fighting became PFL. 
and they were looking for a bank and uh, a bank like investment like the Goldman Sachs or one of them to handle their uh, their initial uh, investments, right? They're, they're raising money. And what happened is the leak was with the, one of the banks, I can't remember what bank they went to, said, we can't do it because we're handling a sale for Bellator. And so Bellator, everybody was assuming Bellator is for sale. I found out, I'm pretty clear, I'm, I, I found out is that Bellator was really trying to sell, DAZN was really trying to buy a chunk of Bell, Bellator at the time. And so, you know, because we're going we're gonna to put you on our network, we want to own a chunk of the promotion to keep you here, you know, to make sure we have some say in the matter. It fell apart. The 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 COVID epidemic hit. The deal fell apart. They left. But the idea that Bellator, in my understanding, is Bellator's always been for sale. It's not like they're like it's a fire sale. Like Viacom's got to get rid of them. It's just that Viacom put a ton of money into them. If you get if anybody offers them enough money, they are willing to accept it. It's almost like top rank with Bob Arum. He's floated the idea. If anybody out there who has the the right connections wants to throw enough money at him, he is more than willing to sell top rank. I mean but, in ninety one, I would be willing to sell too. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I I'd be willing to sell tomorrow, whatever I got, if you offer <laughs> me enough. But I think that's I, I don't think it's like there's a there's not a fire sale or anything, but I just think it's the common, you know, the, the ownership of Bellator is always on the lookout. If someone wants to offer them enough, a, a large enough money to make it worthwhile for them, they're willing to, they're willing to sell the company. Let's talk one championship. Um, can we start talking about one championship for real? Because, boy, it seems like everything, all the books are cooked. Yeah, they. I mean, we look. We we report on their finances all the way up through 2021, and every year they lose a ton of money, and they do not show the best finances. They don't show anything too to get excited. They show increasing revenue, but then you break it down, and you're like, well, a lot of that revenue sounds like barter revenue, and that's not really legitimate money because it's not cash. We don't know how you come up with the price for these items. So, is it for real? It's still it's still questionable. I do not see, there's nothing I see. I see good things happening for them. They signed with Amazon. They plan to come in the U.S. There there's there seems to be getting traction and actual tension for their shows that fans are, they're converting fans in the U.S. market because of the Amazon deal. But you look at there, nothing seems to be massive enough that I'd say they're really generating a lot of money. They are very dependent on that large amount of capital they, re, they raised from investors, which they're burning through a large amount. And I think they're cutting back in costs as we see it going along because they've been burning through so much. But they're dependent on that investor capital that they raised, that, the original equity. And uh, and you look at that. And so, I mean, you can look at the, I mean, you can look at some of their, their, their items we have. They don't seem to sell like a ton of tickets. If they had a really a product that a lot of people are climbing for, you'd think they'd sell more tickets. Merchandise, they, you know, I, I don't hear much about merchandise sales. If you have a big fan base and a very powerful brand that, like, they claim they're the true number, you know, them in the UFC are the true monopolies in the industry. With them in the East and you know UFC out here, you would think that they have massive merchandise sales like the UFC does, but we don't see that in their books. So I'm still very questionable. I think they, I think they do a very good job of building themselves up, but I have yet to see anything that says they are really doing the numbers that they've always claimed they've done. How big uh, is that Amazon deal for them? Um, and and what about holding their first event in the U.S. this year? Is, th- is that going to be the thing that actually puts them over? 
I mean, I think that it will help. It'll bring more attention. It'll be interesting that they're bringing their rule set to the U.S. But like the Amazon deal is massive in the sense that you could tell the big change as soon as they start playing on Amazon that there's a lot more attention. It seems like a lot more traffic on our website. I, don't, I haven't looked at all the metrics, but it does. Doesn't it seem like the way that more people are more interested in them ever since it went on Amazon? The problem is the Amazon deal doesn't ask around. It doesn't sound like that big a money deal. Like mm -hmm. it's my understanding, it's like five million dollars a year which is oh much better than what they had before, but $5 million a year is not going to, you know, when you you're losing at right now, 50 million a year, let's say mm. that's not going to cover the losses. And there's, and the bad news for them is they're stuck with it for, I think four more years. So they need a much bigger media rights deal in the U S to cover those losses, the expenses they're having. And I don't know if they're going to, you know, you're, if you're stuck in this deal, it might be great growing the fan base, but how long can you be in this deal and be burning through the money you're burning. So that's one. I guess the big news, we will wait and see what happens when they, they fight in the U.S. They have their U.S. event. Uh, we see If we see a large amount of ticket sales, we see strong ticket sales and a lot of attention, that's a very good sign because then they can start maybe renegotiate with Amazon. They can maybe get a side deal for their other events in the U.S. They can start selling pay-per-view. They have options at that point. We can see that their brand is really taken off. But I think we're going to have to wait to see what happens with that first U.S. event. What is their end goal? And further, are they still planning that IPO? Well, the IPO was always the end goal, but now it doesn't seem like it because they're were, they were talking about a, a SPAC for a while, but then the, the SEC started cracking down on these SPACs. SPACs are like these reverse mergers, uh, so you don't have as much, there's not as much investigation of your company before you go and go public. So that ended. Uh, there's talk they're going to do an IPO, and they they started listing with the SEC. They moved out of Singapore into the Caymans, and they listed the company on the SEC. We keep waiting for them to submit documents, but they no longer apparently are no longer listed on the SEC, which means that they apparently have no plans to go public in the United States. So, what is the end goal? I'm not sure. I my guess is they're maybe they're potentially shopping around for a, like you know someone Middle East company. I mean, Middle East country, uh, some investors over there to buy it off them, to put a large amount of money into it. I mean, he says he's willing to keep spending money, but I can't, unless someone takes it off his hands, I can't imagine people keep putting more and more money, watering down the shares they have uh, and and not see the return because there's we're not seeing that massive turnaround that you would expect with the, with the company that's just ready to take off. Maybe this year will be different, but I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not seeing it. I'm not, I'm not detecting it. But again, the big the big thing will be well, let's see what happens with that U.S. event. But I don't the U.S. event might be successful, but I don't think it's going to be a game changer. I think they're just going to continue burning through money, and as that money dwindles that they've raised, and they can't get more investment, they're going to have to. The good news they don't have a ton of debt, so they don't have to pay interest. They'll just have to really cut costs, and they'll start you know scaling down operations. It's a trip that they've been in business since like two thousand what thirteen. Yeah, actually, they might have started earlier than that, but that's yeah. when their first uh, started. Uh, first events were started being hold 2012 or 2013, I believe it was. Yeah, I mean, and they're still struggling to gain a foothold at all. It's incredible. All right, let's talk about the the big bad, the UFC. How did the UFC do in 2022, and what do you think their financial outlook is for 2023? 
Well, the strange thing is the UFC, if you looked at like their sales, like pay-per-view sales, you think they did bad because they didn't have any big pay-per-view pay -per sales seem to be very low. At one point, they said they had no event that did over 400,000. And I got the numbers for a few events, and yeah, they were like 200,000, 300,000 lower. So the events for a long portion of the year were not going gangbusters. Mm. But you get to like, uh, oh, uh, yeah, later in the year, I think a few events did better than that, but nothing. There was no big blockbuster pay per view events. So you think that the UFC did poor. But the thing is, they have everything's so much contractual revenue now. Everything's contractual revenue with the TV rights, the pay-per-view, uh, all their sponsorship, and they keep selling more and more sponsorship. Uh, you know, they, they have the cryptocurrency, even though cryptocurrency's falling apart. I'm sure they got paid. They have the their Venom deal. All their deals and sponsorship revenue is through the roof. Their, their, their contractual revenue means even when the pay-per-views do bad, they're making more every year. So this year, I bet you when it comes out, this year, even though it didn't have the big blockbusters, this year will do as, as financially well as last year, perhaps better. And on top of that, in fact, probably better because the, the payouts for the fighters, I don't think went up at all because there was no big purses. There's no Conor McGregor. There's no Khabib. Uh, Israel Adesanya was probably the highest paid guy. I'm getting to combined purses. He made what, 15, 18, 20 million max on his three fights. So their outlook for last year is still going to be good, and their outlook for next year is be even better because, again, contractual revenue keeps going up. Does the Dana White domestic violence incident hurt them, and will there be any repercussions for Mr. White? I don't think it hurts them because – I don't think people care about MMA, right? I don't think people view it as like a legit. I mean, the, uh, we the fans, MMA fans, but we're a niche. We're a small group of people that like MMA. The general, the public does not think much of it. They think, they think of it's a trash. The executives of other companies, I think, think view it as a trash sport. So they don't put much thought into it. The idea that its image has been hurt doesn't doesn't impact them, right? And there's a there's a, bare, a separation between them and and uh, UFC, like Disney. Disney doesn't care because Disney has ESPN. And then ESPN, who works with the UFC, is just going to claim, oh, we have nothing to do with the UFC itself. We just distribute its broadcast. They do all the production. So they have the separation. They can claim that's just that trash sport that does this stuff. So I don't think it's really going to hurt them uh, in the long run because I think in a few months it'll be forgotten. Although there is there is the opportunity to cause some, uh, some problems because it does, again, tarnish the sport the image of it is kind of this trash, violent sport. And I do think as we get into stuff like, you know, uh, lobbying or trying to pass bills or or doing other things like that, or even, even you know, rivals trying to sign fighters and the fan base, how they view these uh, rival promotions, there might be a sense of like, well, the UFC, they, they, maybe they don't deserve to run the sport fully because there's something wrong with them, the way they act. And I'll give these other people the benefit of the doubt, or I will agree that, you know that that we need to bring in some sort of legislation that'll that'll guide you know regulate them because of their actions but that's a slight chance generally i think people just don't care and that's sad people don't care that is very very sad francis nganu he is now a free agent and let me tell you right before we started recording this i saw a picture and i posted it in the slack chat for bloody elbow but this picture shows Francis Ngannou with his family, and it appears that his mother is wearing a PFL shirt. And the account that posted it is called Against the Fence, 
and it says is this a subtle hint of what's yet to come so that brings me to my question what's the possibility that he and other big name fighters leave the ufc this year because i mean he's been at odds and he's been giving interviews and um and his his manager's been giving interviews and it doesn't look like they've come to any agreeable terms yet so what are we looking at here well, I mean, that's the PFL's plan. The whole PFL plan is they've raised specifically $30 million to sign pay-per-view fighters. They know that there's a select number of pay-per-view fighters. And they put out, Don Davis has made it very clear, we want UFC fighters to test the market and come here. That's their whole game plan to build up that pay-per-view division. There's only a select number of fighters, you know, like, you know, uh, Jake Paul and now Nate Diaz, who were, who were exited the UFC. The rest of the fighters have been locked into UFC contracts. That's changed, though, because the antitrust lawsuit, the UFC changed their contract, so guys like Francis Ngannou, after five years, now gets to be a free agent. What's interesting is Francis Ngannou is a free agent. My understanding is he was a free agent at the, sometime earlier in December. That's when he signed his contract. That's when it, term, it should have terminated. But he's made no announcements. And I'm guessing, just based on that, he's made no big announcement. My guess is he's been in negotiation with the UFC because, you know, earlier in the month, it sounded like he really wanted to go back and fight like John Jones. He just wanted the UFC to agree to some of his terms. So I think that's part of it. But if the UFC is unwilling to agree to those terms, then I wouldn't be shocked if he talks to PFL and PFL offers him something because they desperately need fighters like Ngannou. And there's a whole line of fighters. We are going to see. We will see what happens because if Ngannou signs with them, that opens up the door to a whole line of fighters leaving the UFC to go to PFL or go somewhere else. I mean, PFL is the one with this war chest and seemed willing probably to lose money to take risk on fighters to sign them. But, uh, you know, Paulo Costa is going to yeah. be up in April, right? Yeah. So he's a possibility. No, he's not, you know, he's not like a, a headlining pay-per-view guy right now, but he's someone if you give him the right opponent, you get him and then maybe another middleweight comes later. But Stipe Miocic, my understanding is, possibly he hasn't signed his, his his last time. He's still on the same contract from five years ago, so that's up this spring, apparently. Not 100% certain, but that's what it sounds like. And eventually, I mean, John Jones is apparently still on the same contract that would be up next year. So it opens the possibility. If you can get one guy like Ngannou and they can start selling papers, then another heavyweight that's got his contract coming up and go, oh, God, I can go there, and they're going to give us, we know, 50%, and, and you have a big fight like that. Those two could probably negotiate higher like boxers do, but that's a possibility. So it will be interesting because this is the first time that we've ever seen the possibility that these type of fighters can actually leave the UFC and sign somewhere else to fight. And will that, will that happen? Will the UFC answer it by offering more money? That's the question. Because if the UFC can easily beat any offer, but will they beat any offer? That's the question. You know, we sort of saw the beginning of this with affliction when they were signing a lot of names. I mean, they had Andre Arlovsky in his prime, Fedor in his prime, Big Ben Rothwell. That was when he was very prime, even though Arlovsky beat him still. It was a time when Ben Rothwell was young and still winning and so on and so forth. But 
The the difference is is that PFL is they established themselves before they started the pay per views, and of course Affliction all they were was pay per views. So yes, yeah. I, I mean the, the the PFL not to interrupt you, sorry, but the PFL did some Affliction didn't do. They didn't they didn't build the TV platform. If you ever listen to old interviews with Joe Silva. Mm-hmm. He talked about that, right. that you have to have a TV presence to sell your pay-per-views. Exactly. And and so I feel like Affliction tried, and, and they were, um, in the, their mind was in the right place, but they could not execute. And PFL, they were smart. They established everything first before, I mean, three years in before their first pay-per-view. Yes, is it a dud? Sure. But they did it the right way. Well, let me, first of all, the three years in, their, their pay-per-view plan was for all of last year to be running pay-per-views. Right. The, the reason they couldn't is because the fighters weren't available. They're now becoming available. Mm-hmm. And Gano's becoming, Diaz is now available. Uh, even- Jake Paul is now willing to become an MMA. So the fighters are now available. And the other thing is, again, I, even though that pay-per-view is a bomb, I, I, I want to bring up again, for the PFL, even though they lost probably millions on that, it's not the total loss that you would imagine me because the fighter purses were not outrageous compared to like you know like Affliction was right. I mean, yeah, sure they had all the all their their champions appeared on it, but they had to pay those guys as contractual money anyways. The end of the tournament had to get that money, right? Mm-hmm. But with that event, they get the data, they get to work out the kinks. So that when they bring up, when they actually put on a big pay per view, they don't run into the problems because they were able to run through all the, they're able to do a dry rehearsal with that pay per view. And they get to test out like ESPN. How, I mean, how good is ESPN at promoting their events by sending people, you know, prompts and, and, and promos and stuff like that? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that that failed. We could call it a bad pay per view probably helped them with without wasting a big fight that should you know they could have put on a big fight as their first pay-per-view and run into problems that fans weren't aware of it and it bombed and then it was like we wasted something that could have been successful that pay-per-view last year was that was not going to be successful no matter what so it probably was the one to do as your first one to waste you know to do all your testing on that yeah, that and that is basically what I was getting to is even though they had plans for all of last year, it doesn't matter. They established themselves for a couple of years before. They had a TV deal. They ran several tournaments. So they were pretty well firmly entrenched in this community enough where that there was a little bit of buzz around the pay-per-view and they have an established viewership even if it's not enormous. It's established enough where that they keep getting investors and they keep trucking along and now they have an ESPN partner broadcast partnership so I feel like they uh did what affliction could not yeah I, but I mean I we should say one thing too is like even though they, they have a presence I think that this does show though like the brand you know all these other promotions are trying to build their brand like the UFC did and the brand really means nothing. They did a smart thing of getting a, a foothold on ESPN and having a footprint. But truthfully, it is. The big-name fighters are the only thing that's going to draw attention to your product. For sure. You know, yeah. The, everybody's like, oh, we can be the next UFC and pay fighters crap and people will buy our product and watch our shows because our logo is cool. We got a smart cage. None of that matters. Yeah. What matters is you got the fighters. Exactly. And so that, that so it'll be the fighters are now a few of them, not all, but a few of the big draws are now available, and that's that'll be very intriguing to see what happens next year. What should we expect from the antitrust lawsuit this year? Well, we should expect something. We should <laughs> finally something. Uh, we very much expect that Judge Bowler will finally 
put out his written opinion on the class certification. Some he said he had ready two years ago. So we've been waiting two years for that, but because of the UFC citing this this other court, we call the tuna case, Oleon case, uh, uh, about a grocery chain and tuna and you know about how class cert works, and we had to wait for the appeals process that we're now basically we just waited two years waiting for this case that went back to square you know that they, the courts threw out that said that doesn't change anything so we're back to square one we're gonna get a written opinion on the class cert everybody expects any day now literally any day after after the holidays everybody expects it to come out after that we have an appeal uh and two things could happen either the ninth circuit picks up the appeal or they turn it down. If they turn down the appeal. This this case gets starts move. This should start moving a lot faster than it, what it has. If they pick up the appeal, we could have a couple years of the appeal process. But I'm not. I mean, Paul Gift is is confident that it's going to be picked up an appeal. I'm not so confident. Speaking to people, I think there's a good chance that based on you know, I guess we have to see the class cert ruling, uh, his written opinion. But I just think there's a good chance that the Ninth Circuit decides not to. And which means that the UFC would have to wait after a trial to actually appeal the case. But they're not going to, I don't know if they're going to want to risk a trial because the, the potential losses are so vast. But it will be, we will see some progress this year. That's my prediction that by the end of next year, we should be looking at either going into the appeal process or, oh my God, they're going to announce a trial coming in 2024. What can happen in Washington, D.C. to impact the entire industry? Okay, well, this is interesting because there's a couple things that came out of the news at the end, one out of the end of last year, which is that Nate Corey said that Mark Wayne Mullen is planning to reintroduce the Alley Act. I'm going to wait and see that happens before I get excited because I'm not sure, you know, I last year I heard he was going to do it and it didn't happen. Hasn't so. he, I was going to say, hasn't he been sort of flaky about this? So, uh, lately, yes, but before, I mean, he he submitted it twice. They got a bunch of uh, they got a bunch of people signed on as co-sponsors. But now he says he's going to reintroduce on the Senate side. The problem is, you it's still even if you get in the Senate and you get a lot of co-sponsors, a lot of interest, it still takes a lot to get a bill passed. Uh, but it's possible that there, you know, that the interest is there. And again, this is where I think the the, the PR from what Dana White could hurt him because. If it brings enough attention to them, something like that, you introduce the Ali Act, you could you could get potentially enough Congress people saying, "Oh, maybe I should pass this because these guys are Neanderthals in the UFC," <laughs> and and so there's that potential. That's that's where I think one of the risks, the PR risks to the UFC for Dana White. But I don't, I still don't think that's there's not most people in the Senate do not have any interest about MMA. They're not going to be concerned. They have other priorities. So it's going to be very hard to pass. You got to remember when the first legislation that, that was introduced in Congress to tackle boxing was introduced in 1960. We didn't get the Professional Boxing Safety Act until 1996. We didn't get the Alley Act to 2000 for the economic corrections. So it took decades for that to happen. And so we are still, you know, r- relatively recent with legislation introduced for MMA. And so it's possible, but I'm not, I'm going to wait and see. I mean, you know, all for those guys, I'm, I'm holding out hope for them, but I'm going to wait to see if there's how much momentum there really is for it. All right. Last question. Could the FTC new rules on non-competes affect contracts for MMA fighters? This one I do think actually might have an impact on, on uh, MMA fighters because after it was issued, it talked about specifically about independent contractors recovered by it. But, uh, you know, I was thinking, I doubt it's going to affect because we have this in California. 
that you know, in non-competes are not allowed, but doesn't really impact uh, fighters at all. It's never brought up. But look, if you look at the way it's written, it talks about all these types of way non-competes, you know, how, what we can interpret as non-competes. So I started asking actual, you know, experts in labor and, and these type of rulings, and I started digging into it, and I said, well, could this affect MMA? And if you read the antitrust lawsuit, all the extensions, all the tolling provisions are considered, are viewed as non-competes by the attorneys in that case, <laughs> which is interesting, but... The way it's written is it's the it's the items that would prevent you from going on after your contract's done, right? That seems to be the priority. Is they want when your your contract is up, you need to be able to leave to get the most money. And so there's two items. One I think is definitely would very likely be affected by this. Is it seems very very likely that would fall under the new ruling. One is a very strong possibility. The strong possibility is the matching period might fall under this because your contract's up and what the, the the matching period is is basically deny you the opportunity to go somewhere else and deny the chance for competition to build to then come out for other people more money. So so it affects competition. That is a possibility that the FTC, that this ruling, if it survives legal challenges, would impact them. But the one that I think really falls in it is the champion clause because the whole point of the champion clause is to prevent the champion from going anywhere to earn more money. Oof. And so I think it's very possible if this if it's it's it, the rule is going to go into effect. They're going to have they're going to have a people write in their comments. They're going to have a hearing about it. But they've already announced that this will be the you know the rule should this is the going to be the FTC's rules. Maybe some slight changes, and then it's going to probably be challenged in court. But by the end of the year, maybe even before the you know sometime sometime this year, these rules will probably go into effect. And if that's the case, if it unless they don't survive legal challenge, but if they do go into effect, then I think the championship clause would fall under it. You think the UFC is uh, looking at all this? Oh yeah, I'm sure they're paying attention. But not just UFC; the other promotions use the champion clause too. Yeah, but and I so think the, the UFC it would impact the most, though. Well, honestly. yeah, the UFC fighters are the most valuable, so it's yeah. probably the biggest impact on the. On the uh, on the industry, but a lot of the other promotions promotions depend on the championship clause more because they do not want to compete with other promotions, right. and so they want to tie you up and say, "Okay, we're going to use the championship clause because we don't want to offer you more money." And so that's, I think, that on all fronts, that's a positive. I, I hope it passes because it's not even for fighters, but for just in general, yeah. that uh, the non competes are absurd that we have this that we've allowed in this country. So this is great and great for fighters, great for regular workers. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to this actually going into effect. Well, all right. So that's going to bring us to the end of the episode. But John, you already have an idea of what our next episode will be in a few weeks out. Uh, you want to give them a little teaser? The next episode should be us looking at the finances of the PFL. And going through their 2021 investor presentation of what they told investors to plan on, and then looking at some other stuff to see where they stand today and what to expect from going forward, what their current finances are. Awesome. I am looking forward to that. So on that note, do me a favor. Follow this guy on social media. He's only on Twitter, but he is active. He replies. He's at Hey, not the face. And if you have questions, suggestions about topics you want to hear, please at him. Remember, hey, not the face or myself, Crooklyn MMA. You can email him as well. Hey, not the face at gmail.com. And you can email me. That's Crooklyn949 at gmail.com. So 
Until next time, please stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Vivis Section, the Sixth Round Post-Fight Show, Sixth Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, and Radio Style Play-By-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bloody Elbow Blog, and as always, on BloodyElbow.com.